just want to thank again uh, Steve and Ken for the opportunity to be here and teach the Word of God. Uh, we, as a church, take God's Word very seriously, and so I just want you to know that um, we do so as well. So, um, I titled the message, An Anatomy of Temptation. An Anatomy of Temptation. Um, it's something that, as we all know, in the Christian life, we are not uh, immune from. It's not just something that people out in the world, uh, sinners out in the world, face, but sinners inside the church, we have to deal with this problem as well. So it's important that we um, get a good grip on it from God's Word. So um, we know it's, it's no secret to any of us that our culture, our society, is on a traje- trajectory away from God. Um, our culture would love nothing more than to just finally be rid of biblical Christianity once and for all. Um, we have done our best to deny the authority of the Bible and reject the Lordship of Jesus Christ as mere fanatical superstitions for which we're too intellectual, too advanced, too progressive, and too sophisticated. However, even in a society like ours, which is desperately trying to uh, escape the knowledge of God, abandon the God of the Bible, we still have some conception, some cultural memory of a story of a man and a woman in a garden with a serpent and a forbidden fruit, as it's sometimes called. But um, those outside the church, they consider this to just be a legend, a myth, the Christian myth, the Christian origin story, um, perhaps an allegory or a metaphor devised to teach some sort of moral lesson. But for those of us in the church who believe in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation, who believe that God's word is true, without error, um, that cannot fail, is sufficient and authoritative for our lives, uh, we know that this is far from those things. It's not just some legend. It's not just some myth or allegory. uh, But this is a divinely inspired, historically accurate account of an event that would have consequences for the, the whole universe and for our lives in particular. So I'm confident today that for the most part, we're just going to be going through familiar territory, Um, even many children going through VBS or uh, even, um, you know, daycare sometimes in churches. I mean, they're they're so familiar. It can become so familiar of a story that we overlook the really disastrous consequences of what took place. So hopefully I'm just going to be reminding us afresh of things that we already know things that we already know from God's word to help us in our war against sin and our journey toward Christ-likeness. Amen? Amen. All right. So uh, we live in a world where terrible things happen, but more specifically, people do terrible things. Um, this is true not just in the world at large, but also in our own personal experience, our own personal lives. And so in this chapter, we're going to see the entrance of evil into human history through the temptation of Adam and Eve at the hands of the serpent. I'm eager to get to our text, and uh, again, I'm confident that this is going to be familiar territory for many of us, but I I feel like it's necessary to establish something of a setting and a context, so bear with me if you will. In the first few words of the Bible, we're introduced to a self-existent God, a God who has no beginning, has no end, is the creator of the entire universe and everything in it. In the 26th verse of chapter 1, if you'll look with me, we see the special creation of human beings made in the image and the likeness of God, which entails the the dominion, the communion with God, uh, the fellowship with God, fellowship with 
other human beings and the fruitfulness that all of that entails. Um, I'm not, not going to read these uh, verses, uh, all of them. We could just kind of follow along with me. In the 8th and the ninth verses of chapter 2, if you skip over, 8th and the ninth verses of chapter 2, we see the creation of the Garden of Eden as the special place um, that God would dwell and have intimate fellowship with his people, the original design for humanity as God created them. Um, in the 16th and 17th verses, and this is going to be important, we're going to come back to these, uh, records the command of God to Adam concerning the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, one from which they may eat and one from which they may not eat. And the last thing I want to drive home with this review here of these first two chapters is that all throughout these sections, this section of scripture, we have abundant affirmation of the goodness of all created things, the goodness of all created things and the perfection of the world. Chapter 1, verse 4, and God saw that the light was good. Verse 10, and God saw that it was good. Verse 12, 18, 21, 25, and God saw that it was good. Finally, in verse 31 of chapter 1, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So the development of the scripture here crescendos into the most excellent environment. It's a stunning oasis in perfect paradise that provides the backdrop for the most catastrophic, um, well, I, believe, I believe the most devastating event in human history. So turn with me, if you will, if you're not already there, actually, um, to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to be going through the first five verses. Chapter 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What I hope that we'll see and learn from this account is that this is not only the story of Adam and Eve, which it is. It is the historical account of Eve and the serpent here. But that this account also describes how temptation works in our own lives as well. All the temptations that we face today share the same elements as the temptation in the garden. It's, it's essentially a prototype, a template of the temptations that we would face in our lives, which leads me to my main point here is that all temptation is an attack on the goodness of God and the truthfulness of his word. Okay, all temptation is an attack on the goodness of God and the truthfulness of his word, and we'll look at it in three parts. First, the origin of temptation, which provides the who, um, the operation of temptation, which provides the how, and the offer of temptation, which gives us the what, the what of temptation. So... The book of Genesis is a book of origins. In Genesis 3, we see the origin of evil in human history, and in particular, uh, the villain of human history. He's, uh, being, he's a being commonly misportrayed, uh, in our culture at least, in a lot of our uh, children's movies even, uh, as a little man dressed in red, standing on your shoulder, giving you bad advice. He may or may not look like you. Um, or sometimes as a creature with horns and a pointy tail and red, uh, red trident and hooves. And many other cultures, cultures have their own distinct misinterpretations and 
misportrayals of this being. But only the Bible gives us a true and accurate account of who he is and what he is about. And in the third chapter of Genesis, he is referred to exclusively as the serpent. Exclusively as the serpent. Verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. As the scriptures unfold, we're given a clearer picture and a fuller understanding of the serpent's identity. Uh, He is given progressively many more names and titles as the Bible unfolds, all of which culminate in Revelation chapter 20. Turn with me real quick to the very end of your Bibles, the opposite end. Revelation chapter 20, the first and the second verse. In the revelation of Jesus Christ, John is given an apocalyptic vision of the events that will take place at the end of the age. Verse 1 of chapter 20, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit in a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So we see that the serpent, the origin of temptation, is none other than the devil and Satan himself. Now I need to make two things clear, two things clear so that you know what I am not saying. So these are two misunderstandings that I want to avoid, that I don't want you to take away from what I'm saying tonight. So the first one, I am not saying that Satan is everywhere tempting everyone all the time. Okay? Satan is not everywhere tempting everyone all the time. Uh, among many, there's this uh, misconception that God and Satan are these two equal forces of good and evil in the universe. Uh, in kind of technical terms, they call it dualism. Dualism, that there are these equal, eternal forces of good and evil battling it out. I remember when I first became a Christian, there were these uh, photos uh, on Instagram and uh, all these people looked like they were Christian. I didn't know anything. Um, they were just commenting, amen, amen, amen. And the caption, wrote, uh, caption read, like to help Jesus. And it's essentially a, a photo of Jesus, or what they thought Jesus looked like, um, and Satan, whatever he's supposed to look like, arm wrestling on a table. And it's supposed to be the battle for your soul. And when you li- like the photo or comment on it, you're helping Jesus out. Just you know, com- comment an amen or something ridiculous like that. Really. Because the Bible tells me that there's only one true and living God, and that there is none other, and that there's none like him, and he is no equal, no rival, who first Timothy chapter 6 says, is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or ever can see. There's only one God, and he has no equal, much less Satan. Our God is infinite. He's not confined to any one location. He is present in his fullness at all times. He transcends all spatial limitations. Uh, David meditates on this in Psalm 139. In the seventh verse, it says, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. God is infinite. 
Satan, on the other hand, is finite and cannot be in multiple places at once. He is not omnipresent the way our God is omnipresent. And because he's not omnipresent, please understand I'm not saying that when I say that he is the origin of temptation, that he is everywhere tempting everywhere at the time. Every time you face a temptation, it's Satan behind a bush or something like that. What I mean to say is that temptation exists in the world because of the devil. Temptation exists in the world because of the devil and what happened here in our text. Um, it's been said once that Satan has many interns uh, that can do this work abroad for him because he can't be in all places at one time. So ultimately, Satan is responsible for temptations that exist um, that assault the human race and us in our own lives. So this leads to the second misunderstanding I want us to avoid. This is what I am not saying again. I just said that Satan is responsible for temptation. I am not saying he is responsible for your sin. Okay, I'm not saying that Satan is responsible for your sin. He cannot make you sin any more than a tobacco company can make you smoke their cigarettes. The scripture is uniformly clear that the guilt of sin falls squarely on the individual sinner's shoulders. Later, later in this chapter, we'll see the first case of the devil made me do it. Many of us are already familiar, they are already thinking of uh, the reply later in this chapter. It didn't fly with God then, and it doesn't fly with him today. On the contrary, the Bible affirms the free agency of human beings. The free agency of human beings. Now, just so there's no misunderstanding, I'm not saying the free will. I'm saying the free agency, meaning that we have the ability to make moral choices based on what we desire. It doesn't say we're free to choose good and evil or free to choose God in our fallen state. It says that we are free to make moral choices based on the things we desire. And this is where James puts the emphasis in the first chapter of his letter. Verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We are responsible for our own sin. We sin because we have sinful desires. So it's important to remember this because the scripture tells us that we're in a war. We're in a spiritual war. And we have a spiritual enemy who would love nothing more than to lead us to the same fate of eternal punishment and destruction that awaits him. Ephesians 6, verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Ours is a powerful enemy. Though he masquerades in our text as a humble reptile, he's a powerful, personal, angelic being whose entire purpose is the opposition of God and his people. But praise the Lord that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, the text says, your feet. Amen? Yeah. So we've looked at the identity of the serpent as the devil and his responsibility as the origin of temptation. So our text now moves to how this temptation unfolds. We're moving into the operation of temptation, the how. What does the mode of temptation look like? How does the serpent entice the woman to sin? And how does it play out? What was his methodology and what were the consequences? 
We were looking at the who before, we're looking at the how now. And again, I hope that we'll see from this account that this is not just a story about a woman and a serpent, but this is how temptations work in our lives as well. So how did he tempt her? How did it play out? Simply put, the serpent tempted the woman by deceiving her. The, woman, the serpent deceived the woman. Let's look at the second half of verse 1. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The serpent initiates this encounter with the woman by asking a, an apparently straightforward yes or no question. But there's more to this question than merely acquiring information. He's not just innocently interviewing Eve to, to, get, uh, to get a greater understanding on God's word and God's command to them. In this question, he intentionally misquotes God's command to Adam. So he deceives Eve by distorting the word of God in order to misrepresent the character of God. Okay? He deceives Eve by distorting the word of God in order to misrepresent the character of God. And to see this, we only need to turn back again to that text. I told you we were coming back to it. Um, verse 16 of chapter 2. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. The serpent twists this and asks, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? This is where he demonstrates his craftiness. The malicious intent behind the question, the, the diabolical motive behind the inquiry. Something evil is implied in this question. Two things, actually. Two evil things are implied uh, that they're laying under the surface of this question. Number one, God's commands are subject to human judgment. The implication of his question, first, is that God's commands, his clear commands, by the way, are subject to human judgment. He never directly tells her to eat of the fruit. He merely asks her a question instead, suggesting that maybe God's clear commands aren't something to be obeyed. Maybe there's something to just be considered, something to be evaluated, maybe interpreted differently, maybe modified. God's commands are subject to human judgment or human modification. First implication. Second, God is not good. God is not good. With this question, the serpent is intentionally downplaying God's provision for them, and he's emphasizing the prohibition. He's intentionally neglecting the abundance of trees that God gave and is focusing on the one tree that God withheld. He's essentially saying to Eve, a good God wouldn't forbid you from eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A good God wouldn't restrict you from doing anything that you would want to do. God is holding out on you. He is not a generous God who provides. He is a harsh God who restricts. God's holding out on you. Does the thought sound familiar at all in our own experience? Have we ever felt like God is holding out on us by restricting us from doing something that our sinful flesh wants to do? These two implications are subtly hiding under the surface of the serpent's question to the woman. He has planted the seeds of doubt in her mind about the authority of God's word and the goodness of his character. This is the subtlety of his deception. So um, the second part of this 
heading, how the temptation works out in this passage. So we've looked at the serpent deceiving the woman. Let's look at the woman believing the serpent. The serpent initiates the question, Eve engages the serpent and participates in the dialogue. A decision that would have disastrous consequences. So verse 2 and 3, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. You might look at her reply to Satan and think that she is giving her best effort to refute the serpent and to clarify God's command, which in some ways is true. Really, it's a, a weak response. And more than that, what I hope to show you is that this is not really Eve's good faith effort to clarify um, the serpent on God's command, even though he only, gave her one, he only gave them one. It's not like the children of Israel had 613 commandments that they had to know and follow to the T. They only had one. Uh, so what I hope to show you is that what I think we need to take away from this is that this is, Eve's response is evidence uh, that she's really moving in the direction that the serpent wants her to, that she's buying what the serpent is selling. Um, as Eve engages the temptation, sin has found its opportunity. So I want to point out three points uh, in Eve's response that indicates she is capitulating in her confidence in and her submission to God's word. Okay, she's, uh, she's capitulating in her confidence in and submission to God's word. Three places she misquotes God's command to Adam. So her allegiance to God and his word is beginning to wane. So first, Eve subtracts from God's word. She, she, she subtracts from God's word. Genesis 2, 16 again. We're going to keep coming back to it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. God had given them every tree to eat from, minus this one, minus this one. And so we may think that, you know, this is just, uh, we're just playing semantics here. What's, what's the significance of one word? Um, but really, by omitting the word every, Eve is, is essentially joining the serpent and minimizing the Lord's provision and discounting his generosity, discounting his generosity. She then adds to God's word. First, she subtracts, then she adds to God's word. She adds the prohibition not to touch it. God never said that. He never said that. Um, I mean, there are... I had a little bit of trouble figuring out why on earth would she add uh, this prohibition to not touch the fruit when God had never commanded them that. Um, I mean, one possibility is that Adam had instructed her not to touch it just in order to avoid the occasion to sin, which there is some wisdom to. I mean, the, there are several chapters in Proverbs where the author is imploring his son, don't even go down the street of where this adulterous woman lives. Avoid all opportunities, all circumstances, all environments, all occasions to sin. And that is good advice. We should be doing that. That's one possibility. Uh, another one is that this is an intentional expansion to exaggerate the apparent strictness of God's command. I remember uh, when I was working with children at a birthday party place, uh, we were running a summer camp there, and occasionally there would be a child that would not 
be following the rules and they'd be jumping in places they're not supposed to or they might get hurt or might hurt other people and we would have to sit that kid out for five minutes. Kai said I can't go on any of the inflatables for the rest of the day. We would hear that often. It's an intentional exaggeration to magnify the strictness of God and his word. That's another possibility. I mean, whatever the case may be, she had no business adding that and saying, essentially, thus says the Lord. Um, she had no business adding to God's command, and neither do we. And uh, in certain arenas, we see this even in the area of religion. Uh, a lot of people who people and institutions that claim to be Christians and claim to believe the Bible, but really are adding to it. Many of us here grew up in, in Roman Catholicism, where they add to God's word by by tradition or by additional books that are not acknowledged as the Word of God. Uh, Mormons do this with, um, you know, they say they believe in Christ, they say they believe in the Bible, but by adding to it, they show that they really don't. Um, many of our charismatic friends really add to the Word of God by prophecies and by uh, these other things, and they really show that they don't believe in this the sufficiency of God's word. Um, so we need to be really careful about um, subtracting from God's word. Not Many of us don't do that um, explicitly, but in our, sometimes in our practice we do. In our practice we subtract from God's word. Um, we need to be careful about adding to God's word. Uh, and the third thing here that she does, the third point that indicates that she is capitulating in her confidence and in submission to God's word she softens the threat of punishment for disobedience to God's word. You could, you could just put, she softens God's word. Um, there's an intentional emphasis that's missing with the absence of the word surely. Surely. Yes, she still understands that there is a warning, but the force and the certainty of the penalty of death are smoothed over in her response to the serpent by the omission of the word surely. Um, I mean... Entire religions are based off of uh, trying to avoid the subject of, or even the emphasis of, divine punishment. Um, Unitarian Universalist uh, religion is essentially, everyone goes to heaven no matter what. Um, and even in so many um, so-called churches, uh, they may have a doctrine of divine punishment somewhere hidden in a in a lost corner of, the, of a doctrinal statement on the website, but they refuse, they refuse to talk about judgment and punishment for sin. And uh, it really can be traced back to this, um, this omission, this smoothing over, this smoothing over of God's word and the threat of punishment for disobedience. So we see here that Eve is yielding to the subtle suggestion of the serpent as she wavers in her confidence and submission to the authority of God's word. So what do they teach us? What does the subtlety of the serpent and the response of the woman teach us about how we should handle temptation in our own lives? What, should we, what must we bring away from this dialogue and this exchange? First, we need to own God's word. And I don't mean just own a copy of the MacArthur Study Bible that sits on a, on a bookshelf somewhere. I mean we need to own it in our hearts. Because the most important time 
the most crucial time that we need God's word is not when we're sitting uh, at a coffee shop. I used to tell this to some of my friends, you know, we don't need it the most when we're sitting at a coffee shop with our favorite latte and, uh, and have all these, and, you know, all these resources and everything with us. That, that's not the most important time we need God's word. The most important time we need God's word is the moment we are tempted. And if we don't have it with us, we better have it in our heart. We may not have it in the car seat next to us or wherever we are out in the world. We may have 10 Bibles at home, but if it's not in our heart, what, what good is it when we need a weapon against sin? Eve didn't own it. There's only so much revelation up to that point, and she should have known God's word in order to refute the serpent. So we need to reject the example that she sets. And frankly, we need to follow the example of our Savior when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. We need to reintroduce um, passages in Scripture like Psalm 1, uh, Psalm 19, Psalm 119, back into our prayers, and they need to find a place in them again, and not just in our prayers, but in our memory, so that when the time comes, we have something to draw from. We have strength and we have uh, weapons from the Holy Spirit to fight sin and temptation when they arrive. So that's the first thing we need to do. Second, we need to remember God's goodness. We need to remember God's goodness toward us. Think of the goodness of God and everything he provided for Adam and Eve when he basically set them up as vice regents to hold dominion over all of his creation in his place. That was, what, that was what their role was, to have dominion over the entire created world. Not just their, his goodness to them, they were innocent. Think of his goodness to people who deserve hell. Think of his goodness toward us, that he came to be our substitute and bear the penalty that we owe his goodness in giving everything that we need for holiness and happiness in Christ. Third thing, we need to run. We need to flee. We need to fight by fleeing. I can't emphasize how strongly enough we need to reject the example that Eve sets for us. She thought she could have a friendly conversation uh, with the serpent, and it spiritually at least cut the throat of the human race. We fool ourselves into thinking we can negotiate with temptation, but we're really just opening the door for it. The Lord in the Sermon on the Mount said, it's better to cut off your own right hand if it's causing you to sin than to enter hell with both hands. Don't give temptation the time of day. Don't give sin the opportunity to wreak havoc in your life. It's easier to stop an avalanche when it's a snowball. So flee temptation at the very first sight of it. Unfortunately, Eve didn't flee. She flirted with and negotiated with and engaged, but she really yielded to the, to the temptation in the process, putting her right where the devil wants her and leaving the door wide open for the final phase of the temptation in the garden. We've looked at the who of temptation We've seen the how. We're finally looking at the what. So this is the offer of temptation. What is the offer that the serpent made to the woman? That's what we're going to see in the remainder of our text today. If you'll turn with me, um, or if we should already be there. Verse 4. Verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, 
you will not surely die. We could stop, we could pause there real quick. So the serpent has an offer to make and he prefaces it. He sets up his offer with a direct contradiction of God's word. A direct contradiction. Uh, Eve has shown some openness to the serpent, uh, dialoguing with him, engaging with him. And so now he is making his final move. Uh, He moves from subtle suggestion to open rejection of God's word. Satan wants to move Eve from doubt and wavering uncertainty to flat unbelief. And so here he makes his move against the woman with this blatant denial of God's threat of punishment. Satan is calling God a liar. God is lying. He's intentionally not telling you the truth. God is lying to you. You will not surely die. Which is ironic because in John's gospel, Jesus, if you'll turn with me real quick to John chapter 8. Turn with me to John chapter 8 real quick. We're going to be looking at verse 44. John 8 verse 44. Forty-four, you, and he's speaking to the Pharisees, Jesus speaking to the religious leaders of his day, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies." Brothers and sisters, our God not only tells the truth, he is the truth. Our God is the truth. He is the standard and the source of all truth. When God entered human history in human flesh to be our substitute, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is truth. Jesus Christ is truth in human flesh. Furthermore, in Numbers uh, chapter 23, you can turn with me if you like, I'm just going to read it. Numbers 23, verse 19. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Eve, God is a liar. There is no penalty for disobedience. No punishment for sin. You will not surely die. Our generation and our culture has bought into this lie, haven't we? I think it's interesting to note that the first biblical doctrine ever denied in Scripture is the doctrine of divine punishment. And we still hate it today, don't we? Uh, We may not deny the existence of death. Anyone can see that people die. We all know people who have died or have heard of people who have died. We Uh, We know, many of us in this room, by the process of time, that our bodies are moving toward that day. Some of us uh, more than others. So, we don't deny the existence of death. We don't deny the existence of death, but we deny the fact that death exists as a consequence for sin. Death exists as a consequence of sin. As a punishment for sin. Um... 
I think Disney movies have done a good job to talk about this as, oh, death is just a natural part of life. Death is not natural. It is an intrusion, it is an invasion into the perfect universe into which God created all things good. I think a very specific way that we've all come to know uh, even more recently, uh, we've rejected the death penalty as a capital, as a punishment for capital crimes. That's one uh, specific expression of our rejection as death as a penalty. But I think more importantly, we have vehemently and violently, I mean, we could say this about the world, but frankly, it, we have to say this about many in, the, in, the, in churches as well. We vehemently and violently rejected the idea of hell as a place of conscious, unending, unrelenting torment as a punishment for sin. All of this originates in the first lie that the serpent told the woman. And this has come about as a result of our buying into that lie. He says to the woman, you will not surely die. Brothers and sisters, I really need to drive the, the point home with this, that if you deny death as a punishment for sin, you have denied the preaching of Christ. You have denied the preaching of Christ. Uh, Christ, who gave urgent and severe warnings about hell, which, by the way, is death in its fully realized form, which he describes in Matthew 25 as the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. In Mark, the unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and their, and their fire is not quenched. In Luke, as a place of anguish and flame. If you deny death as a punishment for sin, you're denying the preaching of our Savior. You've also despised the cross of our Savior if you deny death as a punishment for sin. Uh, what was the cross if not the means by which Jesus Christ, the Son of God, not only died but died a death as a punishment for sin in the place of sinners who would believe in him? His death was a punishment for sin, just like hell is a punishment for sin if your sins are not paid for by Christ. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Christ's death was a punishment. It was a punishment for sin. Sins not his own, but the sins of his people, for all those who would call upon his name in faith to save them. What amazing grace and what sweet love we despise if we deny this. So the serpent has set up his move against the woman with this blasphemous denial of God's word. So now he makes his closing argument and his exchange with the woman crescendos to this final offer. Everything in the dialogue has been leading to this point. You will not surely die, Eve. There is no punishment for sin. No consequences for disobedience. There are only benefits, and here they are. Verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That's the offer. That is the offer of temptation. Your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. We might be asking, 
isn't that a good thing? Isn't that the goal of the Christian life, to be like God? I mean, doesn't Ephesians 5.1 tell us to be imitators of God? Doesn't Paul, in uh, his first letter to the Corinthians in the 11th chapter, tell us to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ, who is God in human flesh? Yes. Yes. As creatures made in God's image, we have a unique capacity to reflect certain aspects of who God is. And in all those ways, we should. God is righteous. God is loving. God is merciful. He's compassionate. God is truthful. In all those ways, we definitely should strive to be like God. But there are certain aspects of God's nature and character, uh, we call them attributes, that belong to God and God alone. God is omnipotent. He is omnipresent, omniscient. He is sovereign. It's in that way that the serpent makes this offer to the woman. And it's important, again, here to note that the serpent never directly suggests that she disobey God. He never tells her, you should take of that fruit and eat it. He merely suggests, this is what God is keeping you from. This is what God is afraid you might achieve. This is why God pulled that little scare tactic about death. Because he's nervous that one day you'll wake up and you'll realize you can become a god for yourself. You can be your own god. And what is more godlike than being able to decide right and wrong? That is the essence of this offer to become like God, moral autonomy. Moral autonomy. In essence, you'll be able to decide for yourself what is right and wrong because you will know for yourself what is good and evil. You won't need to defer to some external moral standard, much less submit to one that's imposed on you by this so-called good God. This is beginning to sound a little uh, uncomfortably familiar, isn't it? Uh, not just in our society, but sometimes the thoughts in our own heart uh, when we feel that God is withholding uh, something from us that he shouldn't be. Uh, frankly, the nature of temptation has not changed since the infancy of the world. Ecclesiastes, in its first chapter, tells us, verse 9, What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. The character of the allure of sin is no different today than it was in Eden. To decide for yourself what is right and wrong, apart from God, independent from God, is essentially the offer of all temptation. All temptation. Um, it's true in pretty much all cultures in the world, but let's just think about our own. Let's just think about what we've decided is... Uh, is right and wrong. Let's, let's think about the things that we've decided as a society, the things that are good. Are you ready? Well, we've decided that sexual intimacy outside of marriage is, is something that's normal. Um, that homosexuality is not just, not only something to be celebrated, but something to be uh, protected by legislation. We've decided that it's good for a uh, a five-year-old boy to be able to decide that he's a five-year-old girl or, or a 30-year-old woman. Why not? 
We've decided that the murder and the slaughter of unborn people in, um, in the place that should be the safest place for them is good and, and needs to be protected as, as a right. We've decided that all of these things are good and permissible and normal and to be celebrated in total rebellion against in opposition to God's word. It's scary. It's scary. Um, human history speaks with the same voice as, as Scripture on this, and this is the last place I'd like us to turn to. Uh, Judges, chapter 21. I believe it is the last verse of the whole book of Judges. And, uh, and while you're turning there, I'll just make a comment. We just saw, I mean, in the last, what was it, year and a half or so that we've been going through Judges on, on this Wednesday night, uh, we've seen uh, the consequences of this verse. I'll just read it. Or rather, the evidence of this verse. In those days... There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's quite the timeless and uh, universal assessment of the human condition, isn't it? It could all be traced back to this original offer of temptation that the serpent made to the woman in the garden. Brothers and sisters, when we sin, when we succumb to temptation, we're despising the goodness of God and denying the truthfulness and the authority of his word. This record is an account, an historical account of the woman and the serpent, but it describes our temptations as well. Does it not? Uh, I've encouraged and exhorted you thus far to own God's word in your heart so you're ready for when that day comes, or really when that moment comes, multiple times a day. We need to remember his goodness. We need to flee. We need to flee at the first sight of temptation. And all of these things we must do. But we need to remember as well that if our eternal destiny depended on our own efforts uh, to resist and to flee temptation, we would all be damned to die in eternal death as a punishment for our sins against an infinitely holy God. I'll say that again. If we, we need to remember that if our eternal destiny depended on our own ability to resist and flee temptation, we'd all be damned to pay for our own sins and die an eternal death as a punishment for them in hell. So no, we need to look to him who resisted every temptation. We need to look to him who lived a perfectly sinless life and willingly went to the cross to suffer and die as a punishment for our sins, for the sins of every person who would call out to him in faith. We must continue to look to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as we commit ourselves to resisting temptation for his glory. For his glory. There may be someone in here that needs to look to him for the first time. And if that's you... I call upon you this moment, this second, to repent of your sins and put your faith and your trust in Christ and in Christ alone. Believe in Jesus and commit your life to him. And I can assure you with the authority of this book that we're holding, that when God looks at you, he will not see your every failure to resist temptation. He will not look at your every sin. He will see only the accomplishment of his son's perfect life and his death in your place for your sins. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and um, really the uh, uh, scary thing it is to play with fire and to, uh, and Lord, we just ask that you would, uh, in our own lives after we leave here, just expose every temptation for what it is, is just a road to death, a road to destruction, a road to disaster and havoc and, and broken relationships and a disruption in our relationship with you. Lord, help us to uh, resist temptation and to flee and to do it for the glory of Christ and to always be looking to him as the one who paid the penalty for our sins because he resisted every temptation, Lord. I pray that if there are any in here that have not come to that point yet, that they would um, just see their own failure, uh, that they day by day, moment by moment, uh, cannot they cannot flee and they cannot resist temptation because of their own flesh and that they would just look to him in faith, maybe for the first time, and just cry out in their heart. We pray this and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.